0: Chapter eighteen, and we're going to jump over to Luke Chapter, Chapter uh, three Ezekiel, Chapter eighteen, verse thirty. I think this is my custom of going to the Old Testament passage and paralleling that with our scripture text. So that's what we're doing here. It says in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30, Therefore, I would judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God, repent and turn from all your transgressions. Least iniquity be your ruin. Now turn over to Luke chapter 3. We're going to read the first six verses in this passage. you're there, just say, amen. 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 It reads as follows. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetriarch of Gal- Galilee, and his brothers, brother Philip, tetriarch of the region of Archeria, and Triconistus, and Lysimus, Tetriara Abani, During the high priesthood, and Ananias and Caiaphas, Sik- the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the word's Of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of the Lord let the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. Amen? You know, I was thinking about this test, and I immediately thought about these uh, certain aspects, which is political, um, the political climate and cultural climate, and also... Uh, they, the religious, uh, religious climate in our world. Um, and I know that as time continues, the decay of any biblical norms will dissipate eventually, and anything that is considered good will be soon gone. Uh, we see that evident today. Um, I'm sure you can test to this. The majority of you are older than I am, obviously. Um, when you were growing up, Things were considered morally good. Uh, That is not the case as of right now. If you watch the news lately, you would uh, have observed chaos within the United States and across the globe. And the problems that we hear and see in politics, uh, culture, and religion is this, because sin is the common denominator And sin lies within the heart of all men. Therefore, sin itself, or therefore I should say, man is the root of all these problems. And we're trying to fix these problems, but we can't. We hear people talk about politics because um, everyone, I don't care who you are, agree with some form of political ideology uh, you could be a Republican, a conservative, you could be a Democrat, you could be a progressive liberal, you agree with some form of um, political ideology. And within American politics, people identify as a Democrat, uh, an independent, or Republican. Those are the three main parties, and they have the subset parties within those um, those ones. But believe it or not... Politics shaped uh, people's worldviews, and it caused strife within the church itself. I even observed for the last three and a half years that I've been here that whenever an election comes around, everybody starts talking about the next president. Um, We should or shouldn't vote for that. I hear that in the private conversations here at this church, and we hear it around other churches as well. You know, when Obama was first running for his first term, people were for and against Obama. When Trump uh, ran for his first term for the presidency, people were for and against Trump. That is the nature of politics. And we also observe and hear about the stiffness of like hot topics like abortion or illegal immigration or one-sexuality or same-sex couples or transgenderism, we hear about financial crises, all of these things are happening within our culture and other parts of the world. In terms of religion, Christian Judeo values are no longer considered the norm in our society. I remember Barack Obama said the United States is not a Christian nation and I agree with that. It is not. But I must say, and according to history, it is Christian Judeo values is what speared this nation to be a great nation. Today, when it comes to religion, values are meshed with a combination of secularism or some type of quasi-spirituality. Religion itself in this particular nation and across the world is like a buffet line. You just pick and choose which religion you want that you agree with and want to hold to as your personal belief system. And talk about these things. They, uh, I was encouraged not to be surprised. And the reason why is the, the scripture itself speaks about these things, these very topics. If you have ever, ever read the book of Judges or Second uh, Kings, you would know that whenever a judge was Raised up by God, he was there to judge the people because in in the book of Judges, the children of Israel did everything that was according to their own eyes. Or in, in Second Kings, whenever a, there was a good king, the children of Israel prosper. Whenever there was an evil king, the children the Israel the nation of Israel suffer for that. Because they were following after their leadership. Scripture speaks about abortion. That the murdering of babies was practiced for religious reasons. Babies were sacrificed to the false god, And uh, Today, uh, people offer their babies on the altar of convenience. It's convenient for me not to have this baby, therefore I would not have it. And when it comes to human sexuality, this is nothing new. Scripture speaks to that as well. In Romans chapter 2, we see that the uh, sexual revolution happened there in uh, in Paul's time as well. None of this stuff is new, and none of this stuff should be surprising. Whatever is happening in our culture and nation, especially when it is unbiblical, it should give us concern, but it should never allow us to be frightful of what is happening. We should always pray about these issues. We shouldn't take them lightly. I... I, I believe in that. We should be wise and tender-hearted when we deal with these type of topics. But we should never, ever be scared or concerned when a new leader arrives or when something else comes about in the news. Because scripture itself is very foretelling of what will occur. Now listen to me, Whenever, um, whatever happens in politics, culture, and religion, there has always been one standard rule that the church rested on, and that is scripture itself. That is the standard rule. This is why the reformers coined the terms, the reformers like Martin Luther uh, coined the terms. Uh, Sola Scriptura, which means Scripture alone, that Scripture governs Christians. And Scripture itself is the final authority for Christians. And so, therefore, it is imperative that we allow scripture to shape our ver- worldview and not what's happening in our culture or politics or in this religious world. What I just discussed to, with you, just a it was just a demonstration of what we see in our text in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. In Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, there were two external factors happening simultaneously during the beginning of John the Baptist's ministry. That impacted John the Baptist spiritually and personally. In fact, we know that John the Baptist lost his life due to political reasons. Those two external factors were the political and religious climate of Israel, Verse 1 of Luke chapter 3 represents the political and verse 2 represents the religious climate during the time of John the Baptist and Jesus' ministries. And as we can see from verses 3 through 4, this is when John the Baptist was preparing the hearts of the people. Preparing the hearts of the people. And this is the sermon of the title, and where I pull that phrase from is directly from verse 4 when um, Isaiah is quoted in verse 4, it says, prepare the way of the Lord. That is what John was doing. This is the beginning of John's ministry. He was preparing the way, preparing the hearts of the people. Let's look at the political climates in Israel and go forward from there. The political climate, I'm sure that you have already noticed the names that are listed in the first two verses. And all the New Testament writers, uh, Between, in comparison of all the New Testament writers, Luke has written about specific people And his gospel, in addition to that, his epistle, uh, the book of Acts, than any other New Testament writer that that have wrote. Luke was a theologian. He was a physician. He was a historian. And having those type of skills helped him to, uh, to identify and be skillful and be detailed about who was doing what at what time and where. And the very first name we notice is Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar. The beginning of the, uh, during the beginning of John the Baptist and the end of the Roman uh, Empire, there was a total of 12 emperors. To the beginning, to the end of the Roman Empire, there was a total of 12 emperors. And Tiberius Caesar was the third emperor of Rome. He was the predecessor, um, or the, he was the successor of Caesar Augustus. We have learned about Caesar Augustus before. He's in chapter 2. Caesar Augustus issued a decree for Joseph and Mary to travel to Bethlehem. And God used that particular decree to assure that his only begotten son was born in Bethlehem. If you'd like to learn more about those details, read Luke chapter two, or you can uh, listen to previous sermons, which is on our church website. Nevertheless, Jesus would have been 28 or 29 years old when Tiberius Caesar started reigning as emperor in Rome. Tiberius was a was very similar to all the Caesars before and after him. He was politically motivated to remain in power. Like many of our politicians today, he was an irrational individual who was cruel to his citizens. He were very sadistic. He ruled with an iron fist to stump out any opposition that occurred within the Roman Empire. Even to ruling over many territories, including the nation of Israel, to add salt to, to, add salt to the injury, he was also a pagan, a Gentile pagan who, who worshipped many gods, in particular Greek gods. Because the Romans adopted the Greek gods and started worshipping those particular gods as their own. So here you have a ruler ruling over the nation of Israel, a monotheistic nation who believe, as we do, that God is the only true God. And this particular, the nation of Israel, to them, wasn't accepting this fact. It was irreligious for them. It was very paganistic, and this kind of brings me to a illustration. Uh, This, you know, as I was going through this, I was thinking to myself how many people voted for each party—the Republican and Democratic Party. So I looked up the Pew Research uh, article on the Pew Research Center. Um, According to this article, in 2016 election, Republican uh, Republicans, leaners, those who vote for Republicans, view Ben Carson, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio um, at least being somewhat religious. And for those who lean to as a Democrat, they viewed Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders as less religious than their Republican counterparts. And they give a good percentage. Like... Uh, Forty percent uh, believe that Hillary and and, and Bernie, I mean, yeah, Hillary and Bernie was a good candidate, and the other sixty percent, according to this uh, view, that the other candidates for the Republican running for the pr- Republican presidential uh, in 2016 uh, as a good candidates, and this just goes to show that people are catered to. People, uh, candidates who are who believe in the same thing. Basically, people resonate with public officials who have possessed the same morals. But this wasn't true for the Jewish people during the reign of Tiberius Caesar. They didn't have anything that was common. With Tiberius Caesar. And a couple of people you see is Pontius Pilate. We know of Pontius Pilate. He is written in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus Christ was crucified by Pontius Pilate. We know that Pontius Pilate himself was. The main reason to that, to cast judgment on a person because the children of Israel, the nation of Israel, didn't have that authority? Before Pontius Pilate, he was seeking the truth at the time of Jesus' trial. But here we have him being the governor of Judea. We know that. Eventually, after Jesus' trial, Pontius' father had to uh, travel back to Rome because he was an individual who couldn't keep all the oppositions down in his region. He was like the governor, similar to the governor of Ohio. Uh, The governor of Ohio has their right to send out the National Guard. It was similar to that. But the Jewish people complained because Pontius Pilate was a brutal guy. He didn't really care about the Jews. Esmond said that he marched into Israel with pagan symbols. And the Jewish people took that as idolatry. And the list continues and goes on. We see four other individuals. And these are Herod the Great's sons. And verse 1, it said, Herod ben Galilee, This is the second Herod. Herod the Great was the first individual who tried to kill Jesus as a baby, the baby murderer. But God, the Holy, I mean, God sent an angel to warn Joseph to take Mary and Jesus to flee to Egypt, escaping the wrath of Herod the Great. But this particular Herod, the Anterior of Galilee, was Herod the Great's son, and along with his brother Philip, Tetrarch in the region, and Tricontis, and Lysinus, Tetrarch of Albany. These are all brothers and sons of Herod, and you can view these individuals as mayors of particular city. I pull up the map, and I on the map itself is showing me which area that these individuals were ruling over. Now this of itself, was politically motivated as well. The Herodians, the term that the Bible used for these individuals, because they were descendants of Herod the Great, they had their own political motivation to stay in power. I've told you before that Herod the Great killed several of his sons and his wife, because he was threatening that someone was going to take his throne. In fact, when he tried to kill Jesus as a baby, he was threatened because here's a newly born king, according to Scripture. So he sent out his soldiers to massacre, massacre thousands of babies. These were the Herodians. And again, only time that I speak in these terms in a political and a religious sense or in a um, cultural sense is whenever the scripture gives me this opportunity. Here is this opportunity. I'm not trying to bore you to death with all the details. But since Luke wants us to be aware of these things, we must talk about it. and as the individuals is the religious climate of Israel the religious climate of Israel and they are the religious climate of Israel is represented by Ananias and Caiaphas. the the romans had so much power to the point where they can dispose or elect an individual to the priesthood. That is similar to in the government um, governor um, a person who is in government come to this church and say, "I, Pastor Travis, cannot preach here anymore." That is how much power the Romans had at the time. So, when you see Ananias' Ananias name here, he wasn't the priest, per se, because they disposed of him. But he carried so much influence that the the people of Israel knew that he was the priest prior to his son-in-law, Caiaphas. And Luke wants us to be aware of these individuals. These individuals were self-righteous. They were conceited. They placed a lot of burden on the children of Israel. They did things according to their own eyes and not according to God's commands. In fact, these two individuals were the individuals who persecuted and crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. They were the ones who set Jesus' trial in motion. So you see, Ananias Ananias is... Caiaphas. Luke is setting the stage for all of us to be aware of what type of environment that John the Baptist and Jesus was entering into. I think this is a very stark contrast between John the Baptist and Ananias and Caiaphas. And Ananias and Caiaphas, they were the religious elite. John the Baptist was God's humble prophet. John the Baptist was chosen by God during the conception of his mother, Elizabeth. Another stark contrast between the religious elite and God's chosen elect, is that they were in the synagogues. John the Baptist was in the wilderness. They were dressed in fine clothing. John the Baptist was dressed in camel's hair and eating locusts and honey. John the Baptist wasn't your traditionalist. It was not your normal guy that wore the suit and tie. He dressed up and he dressed down. John the Baptist was humble. And God used him to preach the good news. Something that Ananias and Caiaphas were supposed to do. And as we continue to go through this text, we see specific phrases. One is that the word of God came to John. That the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, according to verse 2. When we see The Word, instinctively, we think about Lagos, according to um, John chapter 1, that the Word of God was with God, in fact, let me go there, so I won't quote scripture out of context. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the word was God. That particular Greek word is logos. It means revelation means something far more than what this particular Greek word that has been represented as the English word, word. In our text, this particular word doesn't mean logos. It means rima. It means a lesser special revelation. It is not like John the Baptist was receiving revelation from God, it was more less that he was receiving a calling from God. Remember, there was silence for at least twenty five to thirty years, from the time that John the Baptist was a baby to now in our according to our text. And John the Baptist was in the wilderness. And here is God saying, now it is time for you to go where the people are. The word of God came to John. I liken this to my own personal experience. I I don't know if I shared this with you before, but when I received my calling to ministry, I was sitting in my um, grandmother's kitchen. It wasn't as if I heard an audible voice, because I didn't. But I felt a strong prompting, a switching of my desires. Because, beloved, trust me when I say this, out of all the things I wanted to be and do, preaching was not one of them. In a million years, I thought I'd be here with you. But my desires changed from desiring to make money to desiring to seek after God. And this is the ideal that Luke is conveyed. That the word of God came to John. It wasn't no special revelation. It wasn't something in addition to the scripture. It was something that was prompting John to start preaching the gospel. I wonder if you and I have had this experience before, when you talk to your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends. And you are prompted to say something? That is what Luke is saying here. I know I have had those type of experiences, and sometimes I let those experiences go right on by, and I repent and say, Lord, forgive me. The word of God came to John You know, and we also see Zechariah been mentioned here in our text for clear reasons. If you turn over to Luke chapter 1, and let's look at verses uh, 74 through 77. You will see that here is Zechariah. Uh, Prophecy, we have talked about this. We have expressed, well, I personally expressed that uh, Zechariah was was talking about um, David. He talked about Abraham, and at the bottom of his prophetic message, he started talking about his son, John. And let's read these uh, tests very quickly, then we'll turn back over to Luke chapter 3. It says in Luke chapter 2, verse 74, and that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. Verse 75, and holiness and righteousness is before him all the days, all of our days. And verse 76, and you shall, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his People and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Do you remember what I said to you? That here is John the Baptist in the arms of his father, and his father prophetically prophesying what will take place. Zechariah was repeating what Isaiah said. Verbatim. And I have shared that when his father, Zechariah, was pronouncing these words over John the Baptist, that was John the Baptist's calling. He didn't have no choice but to do what God wanted him to do. He didn't feel out of application to say, Lord, can I do this? No, God ordain him to preach the good news. He was ordained to be God's the prophet of the Most High. Turn back to Luke chapter 3. And that's the testimony I want to say that in the wilderness, just a very footnote to this is that is again, this is the, the stark difference between the religious elite, the self-indulged uh, cult, uh, religious culture that was present at, in the nation of Israel. That John the Baptist was in the wilderness, but guess who else was in the wilderness before they started their ministry? What's the favorite Sunday school answer? Jesus. Jesus is always the answer. <laughs> Before Christ started his ministry, he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. One author said that the wilderness was a representation of the spiritual climate of Israel. I like to think about the wilderness, if we're going to use symbolic terms, that the wilderness was a time of preparation to be with God, to cast out all distractions. Like I said before, I even share with this with a group of men that whenever I have a, a distraction, it's more easily for me to, be, to, to start turning my eyes to what I'm, not really should, what I'm not focused on, what I ought to be focused on, but on to something else that I shouldn't be focusing on. Or as what Paul has said, I do the things that I, I, I don't want to do, and the very things that I should do, I don't do it. But John was in the wilderness. And we don't know his exact location of of where John was. I searched. Nothing really came up. But after his preparation, his time, his enrichment, his growth of being in the wilderness, his contemplation on, on, on Scripture itself... His, his thirst and hunger out the righteousness. After that time, it was time for him to go to the region of Jordan where the people was. Here is a man that took the preparation that was needed. And afterward, it is time for him to use the preparation that he gained for others. John the Baptist was evangelistic. He went to the region of Jordan. And it says specifically in verse 3 that he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Despite the political climate that was happening in Israel, despite the religious climate that was happening in Israel, John the Baptist was doing what God wanted him to do, which was to prepare the way of the Lord. And by him doing that, he was preparing hearts for Christ Jesus. This was John's message. At the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin, what does what even does what does that mean? Uh, I hope that you know that baptism cannot save you. I can get a bucket of ice wardens and, and douse you with it. You would still not be safe. You'll be clean physically. But here is what it truly means. The nation of Israel always knew that the cleansing of the outer body was a symbolic expression of what was happening on the inside of their hearts. The priests had to do it before they even entered the tabernacle. They had to do it before they entered the temple. They had to cleanse themselves before they approached God. It wasn't just some type of spiritual ritual that they were practicing. God was demonstrating to them what you're doing on the outside must happen on the inside as well. So when we hear about the repentance, the baptism of repentance, it is the softening it is to it is to share the gospel to soften the hearts of the people you are not doing that it is god the holy spirit is doing it through the preaching of his of, of the word itself you're just an instrument preparing the way for the lord all of us are disposable All of us are tools in God's hands. That's all we are. And God will use us according to his good pleasure. Whatever is pleasing to him, whatever is good to him, it will benefit, not necessarily us, but him. As if he needs any benefits as the English language. God doesn't need any type of benefits; He is self-sufficient Himself. So, the repentance, the baptism, or repentance or forgiveness of sins. You know, when we if we baptize someone here, it is on the lines of okay, they have made a profession of faith; they have confessed that the Lord and Savior is their. Uh, they have confessed that Jesus is the Lord and, and their Savior. But I must say, have, have, it's the credit within me that says, that's not enough. We can baptize people out of the wazoo, and it still won't be enough. Just because someone wants to repent doesn't mean that they're saved. That is the big difference here. And I want us to be very clear on this as well. Everyone can feel remorseful about what they have done. That doesn't mean that they're safe. Lord, I repent. Yes, you feel them very remorseful. But repentance doesn't save you. It cannot save you. If someone is feeling the, the unction of, of repentance, it is what God is doing on their hearts. It is that He's humbling them. And by humbling them, they're coming to God as humble individuals. Even though people repent of their sins, it doesn't mean that they automatically save. Sinners repent all the time. If they feel remorseful, but repentance does not save anyone. What saves individual is the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. One pastor has eloquently said. When Scripture portrays that we are dead in the trespasses of our sins, the question is, how can a dead person approach God? It would take a miracle for an individual to approach God. And a miracle that it it truly is. That the only way that you can approach God is by the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, must quicken you. God, the Holy Spirit, the conviction of God, the Holy Spirit, is a blessed thing. It truly is. When someone is convicted, they do feel remorseful. They do feel that they need to to humbly submit to God. And they may have repented. In fact, not only they may have repented, they may have said, okay, I repented, now can I be baptized? But beloved, we shouldn't think of baptism in these terms. We shouldn't think about salvation in these terms as well. Let me get to my point, because I'm, laboring on about it. Baptism of repentance and forgiveness of sins cannot save you unless you are coupled with the regeneration and faith in Christ Jesus. Where do I get that from? Turn to at, let's look at, um, give me one second, all right, turn to Acts chapter, That's why you always have to have notes if you can't remember off the top of your head. No. Is when uh, Paul was uh, the disciples of John the Baptist came to Paul and they said, and Paul said, "Were um, by what gospel you were saved?" And said, "By John's gospel." And Paul repeated by saying, "John preached the baptism of repentance." And after Paul prayed for them, God, the Holy Spirit, came upon them. And that is when they start preaching, um, speaking in tongues. And I use this particular story because to identify that God, the Holy Spirit, is the seal of our salvation. I love y'all so much. Everybody's looking like, where's that passage (laughs) Um, But God the Holy Spirit is the seal of our salvation, according to Ephesians. And since he is the seal of our salvation, it is evident that baptism of repentance cannot save anyone, unless it is coupled in faith with Christ Jesus. John the Baptist was preaching repentance, but he was pointing towards Christ. Does that make sense? This is the, uh, the crux of the text itself. John the Baptist said it repeatedly over and over. I am not the Christ. Are you the prophet? No, I am not. John the Baptist's message was repent and believe for the kingdom of of God is at hand. And what was at hand? Christ. Christ was at hand. Because as soon as John the Baptist's ministry was over, as soon as John the Baptist was put to death, even a little prior to that, uh, John the Baptist's death, Jesus started his ministry and that is when John the Baptist ministry started to decrease thank you for being Bereans because I see here hear our pages flipping <laughs> turn back to Luke I will, um, once I find the biblical passage I will give it to uh, Melvin and he will have it on the website within the notes Let's go ahead and finish up. Verses 4 through 6. Have you ever thought about what these texts, I mean, these verses mean? As I was going through, I read several authors, and one particular author said this was a representation that things was crooked in Israel, so therefore John the Baptist have to, be, uh, have to make things straight. And that's a good analysis of the text, too. Or an interpretation. But well, when Luke quotes, quoted uh, Isaiah, this is the di- direct quote from Isaiah. This is, I believe, is that here is a prophet. Here is a person who was a herald of the gospel. And he is calling everyone to repentance for the sake of the king who is drawing near upon them. The ideal, the imagery here is that people are going before the king and calling out, here is the king, make every path straight. Prepare the way. That's the imagery here. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. And every crooked shall be come straight. So whenever a king went to the valley, people made preparation. Prior to the king arriving in that location, So they're using the imagery of Old Testament Scripture, of how kings were carried through valleys, to say, here is the true King Jesus. And I am preparing the way for him. all flesh shall see his salvation. You might say, well, so what? Like, in what sense does this apply to me? Uh, I hope you were listening. It applies to all of us. Because this is what we have been called to do. We have been called to preach the gospel and leave the salvation business up to God himself. We have called to be faithful to God's word, speaking, conversing with individuals, in hopes that God is softening their hearts We're called to be evangelistic. We're called to prepare the hearts of people for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we call to. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I do ask you that what was said would be would be meditated upon, that we all would take heed to what Luke communicated to us and what I communicated to this congregation. I ask that you would help us not to be less days ago in our approach to preach the good news, to let everyone know that the kingdom of God is at hand, that today is the day of salvation, that repentance cannot say they must have faith and place their trust in Jesus Christ and Christ alone and nothing else. I pray that we... Not only believe what we hear and read about in your word, but we actually do it. That we would not only be doers of the word, I mean not hearers of the word, but doers of the word, Lord. Let this be true for us. And forgive us for our unintentional sins in Christ Jesus. And thank you for creating, uh, making us into a new creation in your son, Jesus Christ. As the ushers are coming up, I pray over the offering. I do ask you that you will bless what, is, what will be given. And you will bless those who give.